Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. My guest in this conversation is Bob Mesta, one of the pioneers of the jobs to be done theory and founder of the Rewired Group. Now, I think it's fair to say that Bob's work on jobs to be done, along with Clayton Christensen, has fundamentally changed the way that we all think about building products and discovering what progress people actually need and want from the products they hire. I'm also not aware of anyone who has touched a wider range of innovations. I think Bob is up to about 3,500 products he's worked on and launched in his career, covering essentially every industry on the planet. So without any further ado, let's just get into it. Please enjoy learning from one of the modern masters of understanding what is it that makes people tick and what makes them buy. So I give you Bob Mesta. I think the notion make things that matter is is such a great statement because at some point it's like, it's got to matter to you. It's got to matter to others. And it's about making and creating things. And so part of this is to realize like, this is like, you know, what I would say is this is my, this is my sweet spot as well. Cause my mom would say is, I was, I was, I came out of the womb, you know, an engineer, right? I was breaking things by the time I was two. I was fixing things by the time I was four. So I got out of trouble, but I've always been kind of curious how things work. Primarily, I think because I've always wanted to actually either build things or, or like I, I, I have this notion of like, I, when I take something apart, I can remember how I took it apart to put it back together. So like, I have these skills that I've, I've honed and refined over the years to do that. So it's been a lot of fun. Where do you want to start? I feel like we already did. Good, good, good. So Bob, officially welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. It's such a pleasure to have you here. When I told some friends that I was you were coming on the show, we were all just giddy because we've all followed your work for years and benefited from it. So first off, gratitude you. for your work, for being here. Really grateful for it. But would love to just kind of pick up where where we were just chatting before we officially started this. But you know, tell me about how your upbringing shaped like the work you do now, because you found your way to, to, I think what April Dunford said, this beautiful niche for yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very, it's a very weird thing. So the, what I would say is, like I said, I, I feel like I've, I've been, I, you know, I was born to create things. Like I, you know, I, I say my purpose is I exist to help make the abstract concrete, right? That's like, if I'm not doing that, then I'm not doing what I should be doing. Mm. So that's kind of my, my, that's my North star in terms of how I think mm. about things. But my, my, my dad was an engineer. My mom was a school teacher. I had three close head brain injuries when I was, before I was seven years old. Cause I was, I was like, I built parachutes and, you know, skateboard ramps and, you know, I, I made mini bikes and, you know, I built go-karts and mm-hmm. like I was always getting into trouble and always kind of building things. But like I really started building product when I was about 10, where I had collected old hi-fi sets and I had probably about four or 500 speakers. And then I learned how to build crossovers. And so I built cabinets. And so I started making speakers for friends. And then I had a little DJ business and started doing that. And Hmm. ultimately just kind of always wanting to build things. When I got to college, basically, I barely got into college. I got the almost the highest score in math. I got the lowest possible score in English. So they labeled me as a savant. And in the end, I was able to, I was able to kind of just barely get by the the written classes, but but the math is kind of like my first language. And so, and when I was 18 years old, I met Dr. Deming. Mm. I thought he was somebody's grandfather. It turns out Dr. Deming was the gentleman who went to Japan in 1952 to help rebuild it. And he's the father of the Toyota production system. Mm-hmm. I met him when I was 18 and, and he took me over to Japan as my summer internship. And I learned, I met Dr. Taguchi and I, I met Dr. Moore and I ended up basically learning all these tools and methods to help reduce product development cycle time from 72 months to 36 months for the car manufacturer for Ford, who I worked for out of school. And so, you know, I, again, I, I'm one who I love to build things. I'm to the point where, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, not, I, I not only build product now and I, I'm on, I'm, a, I'm an advisor and mentor to many different companies. But like, I like to build my own thing. So right, I've got, you know, four or five books going. I've got like a, a book that'll be done in May. I got two more coming after that. I've, I've got a process down to basically have people help me write it. And so it's all about kind of my experiences. And, and then I've, I've been painting for 30 years. And so I love to paint. And then I've been hmm. picking up snow skiing with my kids. So I snow ski and just try to do as much as I can with my kids because I'm almost 60 now and. Uh, for the most part, just a, uh, you know, a, a regular nerd, like, you know, I'll say an old school. Nerd. <laughs> I, I've got, I've got my, I'm very eclectic. I'm very technical. I'm, 
I'm an audiophile. Like I've got in this room here, I have, so I have all these different things in my room here. And if you kind of look at it, I've got like, I got almost, I think I got 12 or 13 speakers in the room. I've got, you know, all these different, different, different ways in which to kind of play with audio. I've, I've worked in, in audio a lot. And so it's just, I'm constantly trying to see struggling moments and figure out new things. And so I'm, you know, I'm excited for 2023 primarily because in a recession is when most entrepreneurs start. It's basically where most wealth gets transferred and that people change behavior and they have new struggling moments, which means there's opportunities to create new innovations. And so like I felt like 2022 was limbo where we were sitting around waiting for the recession. But now I think everybody agrees it's here. And now we have to figure out mm-hmm, what we're going to mm-hmm. do, which is great. So we're going to talk about a lot of things in this conversation, right? You, you, you more than almost anybody I've come across have like built this amazing toolkit or tool belt for creators, for, for innovators, for entrepreneurs, for product people to be able to navigate the ambiguity and the complexity of, you know, real life, which is, I think in some ways, one of your superpowers, like you talked about making the abstract into the concrete. And, and that's something that I've seen exploring your work over the years is like, it, it it's almost like a set of, I'm going to mix metaphors, but like a set of lenses yep. to be able to see reality for more of what it really is and then build things accordingly. I, I think the other thing is the gift that I got by being dyslexic is to realize that I don't know. I feel like one of the things that hinders us so much is that we go to school and we all get A's and the A's mean we know. And so when we get hired, we feel like we should know, but we don't know. And we don't want to tell anybody we don't know. And so to be honest, the tools, you have to realize that most of the tools and the methods, like I wouldn't say I built them. I've literally was able to learn them and to to your point, hack them to basically work for me. But like, you got to realize out of high school, I'm a dyslexic, illiterate kid and for the most part, I should have been like my career chest said I should have been a baggage handler at the airport. <laughs> and now I'm, you know, and now I've worked on over 3,500 different innovations, everything from the, you know, guidance system for the Patriot missile to, you know, Pokemon mac and cheese, base camp, five gum and QuickBooks. Like, it's just like, Unbelievable. I, I, go, I look back and go like, I have no idea. I could have never planned any of that, but it's more to your point of being able to look in the real world and see where the opportunities exist and jump in and, and create. So it's like, it's like, you know, I feel like anybody can do this, but it takes, it takes work ethic and it takes humbleness to basically really create good things. Going, you know, we're going to get into all these skills a lot more, especially from your new book, Learning to Build. And by the way, for the listener, we'll link to all this stuff in the show notes. But one of the questions that I had and that came up in this conversation with my friend is these core skills of innovation. And there's five that you should probably cover here in a second. But my main question for now is, can these be trained or do you, do these have to be inborn? Like, do you have to hire for this or can you train? Yeah, these? I come from the school that this is this is a learned behavior. Like, I think some people are wired maybe a little bit more to have a, a, a like, so it's like the difference between a talent and a skill, right? I think some people are more talented in innovation skills, but I think there are, I think anybody can learn these innovation skills. And I think that, that part of it is, is realizing that reps and practice are, are like any, any craftsmanship, you have to actually get your reps in. I am just blown away though by the number of products and innovations you have worked on, like 3,500 or something. How, how have you done this many reps? This is unbelievable to me. Yeah. So I think it's a lot of it started when the automotive side. So I probably worked on like, if you will, inside a car between the car, um, the manufacturing of the car, the manufacturing of the parts. I worked on a thousand, I, I worked in the basically new product launch. And so even though we built one car, there was at least a thousand components I worked on. So I worked on an engine, I worked on transmissions, I worked on interiors, I worked on injection molding, I worked on, so it's this place where I have to say like the automotive industry as a whole, pretty mm. crappy, but man, was I able to get some reps in very quick time. Like I always felt like for every year I worked there, I got three to five years of experience everywhere else because it was just being like being picked up and thrown from here to there. And, and, I, and I ended up working, you know, here mm. in the U S and in Canada and Mexico. And then I went to, to Europe and worked all through Europe. And then I worked in Asia. Like, so on the automotive side, it was just like, and what, what happened is the methods that I learned were, were almost like I got the hardest problems. It's almost like, let's get, let's see if Bob can fix this one. Right. And it was because I had learned Dr. Taguchi's method and the method itself was so straightforward 
but people were so resistant to the method. So it's in it's a pretty straightforward approach. It just requires uh, practice and discipline. And so you start to realize that everybody would just say, well, Bob would go solve this and I'd solve it and I'd tell them what it is. And then they'd say, well, that can't be possible. And then we'd run it and it would work. And they'd go like, wait a second, how did you figure that out? And you start to realize and show them how to how to explore solutions as opposed to prove solutions. And so that's where a lot, I got a lot of reps. And then from there, I went to, I went and worked on weapon systems. I worked for the Department of Defense and NASA for about three years and mm. worked on everything from the space shuttle and space station and, you know, the Apache and, you know, the B2 and the ATF and, and just pulled into kind of, again, that, that notion of where they were having technical problems or they were behind and they need methods or tools to help kind of figure out what to do next. And then from there, I did my first startup where I worked in the food industry and I basically started a outsourced product development company and probably did another thousand food products from there. So everything from Kraft and Keebler and Unilever and P&G and SC Johnson and, you know, wow. so cleaners and, 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 and so part of this is as a, and I sold that business and then I got into the home products business. And so for me, it's been always, I think to your point, you said this earlier in the, in, in the earlier conversation is like, I don't get bored. I like, I, like I'm trying to actually see the generalized theory of the world. Like how do, how are hostess Twinkies like, you know, the, the, the space shuttle, a main engine. <laughs> and people are like, wait, what? Yeah. And you start to realize, like, <laughs> but structurally or functionally or mechanically or, or like there's certain things that are going on. And so part of this is, is as a dyslexic, the gift that I was given is pattern recognition. And so I have just ridiculous pattern recognition skills that, that enable me to kind of see uh, analogous things between one, one world and another. And, and, and ultimately, that's how I've honed and refined the approach that it's, it's like there's a process and there's content and I can apply this process to just about any content. So I, I actually firmly believe they're all, they're all learned and that, that it's about, you know, focus and, and, and figuring out how to, how to hone and refine that skill, if you will. And so I, I, that's why I've named it like the, so the name of the book is uh, learning to build the five bedrock skills of innovators and entrepreneurs. And it's really mm. like I, I wrestled hard with, is it a skill? Is it a talent? Is it a perspective? What is it? And I, and I came back to basically call it a skill because again, I, in the book, I talk about it as like young Bob and what I used to think <laughs> and yeah. then how the skills, how I've developed my skills over time and what enlightened Bob or, you know, 60 year old Bob thinks about the same problem and how I see it differently. And so to me, by mm -hmm. looking at it through that lens, I, I, I would say it's, it's, it's very much developed. And I think that, that it's about practice. I appreciate that. It really reminds me actually as a quick aside of in the book Grit by yep. Angela Duckworth. She has this whole distinction about talent and skill where, you know, yeah, talent is real, that skill counts twice because you can have talent, but skill gets you basically twice as much impact. And, and I think the thing that I learned and I, you know, I, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. I've, you know, is born and raised here. And it's like, we, we, we are, we are a city of grit. <laughs> I mean, just look at the lions, right? <laughs> And, and so it's, it's just one of those things where, you know, I, I would say I've never been the smartest person in the room, but I've, I've always been willing to outwork and out, out rap just about anybody. And so part of it is that, that that's kind of the, some of the skills I learned is to admit, to admit, I don't know, to figure out what the unknowns are. And then basically what are the, what's the path to go uncover the unknowns as opposed to prove my hypotheses. And then you start to realize how limiting a hypothesis foundation approach is when you have a lot of unknowns. Let's unpack that a little bit because it is so common and, and it's really in the lingo of just the whole world of innovation over the last 10 years after, yeah. you know, lean startup and agile, et cetera, et cetera. You know, everybody's like, Oh, what's your hypothesis? What's your experiment? Your whatever. Talk, say a little bit more about that, that maybe a hypothesis is not the place to start. So for me, it, it usually isn't because what I would say is, is 99% of the time my hypotheses are wrong. <laughs> Like I, I, I just don't know. And, <laughs> and what I, and again, I start from the premise of that. I don't know where I think counterparts or basically other people that like, I'll go, you know, try to, to help the other go like, well, I know exactly what to do. I'm like, okay, then go do it. Like it, but the, the reality is, is I know that I might've done something last week and something's changed between last week and this week. And that the assumption is, is, well, nothing's changed and I can just keep doing what I'm doing. I've learned that that's, that's just a mistake on my part. And so so like the research that I do around jobs to be done and that people don't buy products, they hire them. 
to make progress in their life. That whole aspect was, is it really started as my hack because they'd give me market research reports and I couldn't make sense of them. And so ultimately I learned how to do these interviews to build hypotheses. So I call mm, it hypothesis yeah. building research as opposed to hypothesis proving research. Mm. And I talk about this as, as one of those skills where we start to raise when we start with hypotheses, we think we know. But one of the, one of these five skills is called prototyping to learn. And it's the, the fact that I'm going to actually go build things to learn what's going to happen as opposed to think I know what's going to happen. And you start to realize like, it's just what, what conventional wisdom tells me is usually not correct. And so that's why, to be honest, I, I'm, I've been so good at building things is because I, I don't start with the hypothesis. I start with letting the product tell me what's the best product as opposed to letting, you know, my mind or letting the group say, here's what we think the best product is. So it's, it's a very different kind of approach. And that's where I like, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly starting with what I call the demand side of the world, which is hmm. what pro what, where's the struggling moment? Where do people want to make progress, but they can't. And ultimately how do I then find technology and products to fit into people's lives? And so when you do it that way, it's actually so much faster and easier to innovate than say, Hey, I've got this idea. I'm going to build it. Like who wants it? And now I got to think of 8 billion people who might want, I have to sift through the 8 billion people who might want it. And it's just, it's a very different kind of approach, but it's, it's that aspect of if I know the problem, the solution becomes easy. But if I have the solution, trying to find the problem is really hard. Just to kind of set a context, can you just really quick go over what are these five bedrock skills? Yeah. So my, my youngest graduated from college and I, we, as a, as almost a, like I said, a 60 year old trying to figure out what we're going to do next. My wife and I, we've been married for 33 years and like we start cleaning out the attic and it turns out I have like 847 notebooks up there of every <laughs> notebook I had since I was 18 years old all the way. And I'm like, okay, we need to throw these out. My wife's like, no, don't throw them. Like take, take some time and go through them. And then I started to re like, and for me, I have a, if I have a person, a place and a, a, and a time, I can almost have an eidetic memory. And so I could look at these pages and remember exactly who was in the room and where I was. And it just started to bring back all these emotions. And, and it really started to actually help me understand these five, the skills that these five, my four mentors gave me. And so I took a step back and kind of looked at of all the people I've worked with. I mean, if I've done 3,500, I work with tens of thousands of people. I literally said, who are these really, really, you know, unique innovators that I've worked with? What did I learn? How did they teach me and how do I pass it on? And so I wrote this book basically by looking at the skills that they embedded into me through, through the years and how I've honed and refined it to be able to work on so many things. And so these are what I consider the five bedrock skills of kind of what an innovator and an entrepreneur need to have in order to be successful, right? And so if you kind of take the room and say, here's the successful entrepreneurs, here's the, here's the ones who have failed, like what, why did they fail? Why did they succeed? This is my analysis of it. Number one is, it's very interesting, it's called empathetic perspective. These, you know, this skill is really about being able to see things from multiple perspectives. It's that lenses notion, right? But they like really good innovators and entrepreneurs can see through space and time. They can see the past. They can play with the, the, the present. They can actually frame the future. They can play things out. They can see things from a very macro level. They can see things from a very micro level. They can actually play the role of like, well, what's finance going to say? Or what's the sales going to say? Or how's the customer going to react to this? And they can do this in a way that's just disconnected from their emotion, but actually being able to understand where people are coming from. So they're, they're almost like really good actors or actresses, right? They, they can, they can empathize. And so what happens is that that skill turns into a lot of things in terms of seeing problems before they happen, understanding chemistry between teams, being able to play things out and prototype in their mind. Like they can do all these different things. But when you don't have this skill and you try to convince people about your answer and about your perspective and convincing, you start to realize like that's one of the biggest downfalls of most entrepreneurs is they, they tend to try to want to convince people as opposed to help people make progress. Second skill is uncovering mm -hmm. demand. They realize that products don't create demand, struggling moments do, and that demand does not lie inside companies. Demand lies within people in the companies and de demand lies where people struggle. So if we study struggling moments and we understand where they lie and how they come about and we can then develop better products. And so instead of trying to uh, just build a product, build it and they will come, it's more this notion of being able to understand the demand side. The third skill is that they have 
mental models for how things work. They have a cause and effect, I call it causal structures. They think through things that are cause and effect. They build things through cause and effect, but they have a very, very, they have multiple ways in which to think about cause and effect, but they're always thinking about what are causes, what are effects, what are measures, what are outcomes, what are outputs. They have very clear definitions about how things work. The fourth one is that they prototype to learn versus prototype to verify, meaning that they actually are building things and and learning as they build as opposed to feeling like they have the answer and they're building to verify. And so you start to realize that a lot of people build things to learn and answer real deep questions. And so they frame things and the prototyping is very different when when you're really good at prototyping to learn. And then the last one is identifying and managing trade-offs. You start to realize that I think the decision-making ability of most entrepreneurs is phenomenal when it comes to being able to say, we're going to do this and not do that, or we can't have the whole thing. And, you know, Jason Fried, I think, says it best here. You're better off with a kick-ass half than a half-ass whole. And <laughs> that, that really is that reflection of if you don't know how to make trade-offs, you end up with a half-ass whole, right? And so the five skills that, that, that I, I just kind of came back to, I had, I had seven and then I had three, and I went, but these are the five that I kind of came back with. And there's tools and methods and, like if you can up your game and any one of these skills and and the other thing I would say is you don't need to be good at all five. But what I would say is when I recruit for a team to get to your thinking later or earlier around somebody who's tried to hire is I try to make sure that my team has all five of these skills and, and at least everybody has is a rock star in one or two of them. And that's how I build my teams. That makes perfect sense. So we're going to dive in, I think, yeah. a lot in the middle three there, the, the uncovering yeah. demand, the causal structures, and, and yeah. prototyping to learn. But I guess one question I wanted to ask really quickly, which of these five is underappreciated? Like, what do people gloss over that they should not? See, that's, that's a, it's, it's the, reason why, the reason why the sigh and the hard question is like, I think of is that like, it's, it's about perspective on this one, right? Like, like who's asking that question, right? Mm-hmm. Is like from an entrepreneurship perspective, I think part of it is, is empathetic perspective and prototyping to learn. I think from an innovation perspective, it's actually like it's de- more demand and, and being able to make trade-offs. Like, so I think it, it depends, but most startup people, they're usually pretty good at empathetic perspective and they're pretty good at, at causal structures, but they're, they, they lack the notion of being able to see the trade-offs and make the trade-offs. And they, 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 they so there was a lie that I was told in engineering school that I just, it, it literally, I don't, I don't, I'm not a fighting person, but it, it makes me fighting mad, which is, you know, build it and they will come. Mm-hmm. And I did that for the first part of my life. And it just got to the point where I realized like they can't articulate what they want. I don't even actually know what they want. And yet at the same time, the words they use when I, when I go build what they actually say, they say, nope, that's not what I want. And you start to realize like it's just this whole notion of building it, build it and they will come just isn't true. It's getting around it. But I think that the most underappreciated one is really prototyping to learn across the board because most people, We've been taught to prototype to verify. I have a hypothesis. Let's go build a test that tells us how, you know, is our hypothesis true or not? And and my belief is it's just so limiting because at some point everything is so multidimensional that it's just, it's hard to think about proving hypotheses so early in developing of a product. Yeah, absolutely. Let's so I, that's where I want to start to to jump in on there because I I certainly have fallen into that trap. I think everybody I know, probably everyone who's made anything, has fallen into this trap. And and that's originally, like I said before we started recording, what led me to your work was you know there's a certain point where you've you've worked on enough things as a builder and they didn't go anywhere because nobody came, and you're like, yeah. huh. This something's wrong here. And so I, I'm a hundred percent in agreement there, but let's, let's push in on prototyping to learn. And one thing just to kind of tee this yeah. up is in the prototyping to learn chapter of the book that really just made me perk up and go like, wait a second, I haven't heard this before was this idea of the orthogonal array and this oh, idea yeah. that you could test so many possibilities with such a small number of prototypes. I think you had something in there. Like you could cover 90% of the space with like nine prototypes out of thousands of possibilities. So Let's 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 zoom in there. I want to hear more about this, and I think this is something people don't. Know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so this is where so the, 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 this is some work done by you know very early on by Ronald Fisher in the twenties around crops, and then Dr. Taguchi picked it up in the fifties and the sixties, where he started to apply it to 
basically engineered components. And it's this notion that if we try to look at all combinations of something, if we look at a system and say, how does it work? We typically will hold everything constant and change one thing at a time and say, is this better or worse? It's, it's more or less the A-B testing approach, right? And, mm-hmm. and Dr. Taguchi would say like, you know, I would do that, but like, Sometimes this this one thing is dependent on another thing. And so if I hold everything constant and I change that one thing, it might make it a little better. But if I change it to that other thing, boy, it makes it a lot better. And so all of a sudden, you know, what what is what what really has an effect and what doesn't have an effect? And so Taguchi basically found these things called magic squares. And they're it's in the math realm of basically design of experiments and the 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 body of work around design of experiments. And and what they are are basically patterns of data that allow you to then tell you how to set up your prototype. So for example, there's something called an L9, three to the fourth, which is a nine prototypes with four factors at three levels. And that represents, if I try to do every combination, that's 81 possible combinations, but I can actually do it in nine. And so one of the ways that I was able to work so efficiently is that the orthogonal array enabled me to, to, to literally be able to prototype almost like way faster than everybody else. And my results would always be way more conclusive because of the orthogonality or the balancedness of how, how you run the experiments. And so this is a very, very deep rabbit hole to go down. And to be honest, it's one of, it's a, one of the next books I'm writing out on because it's just, it's so many people have been picking up on it and realizing like, like, how do I test when I don't know? And so that's really kind of where I'm, where I'm kind of focusing with these things, but it's literally a tool I use all the time. Like, so over the break, I worked on uh, refrigerated pickles. Let's see what else did I work? I worked on cheese sauce. I worked on salsa. Like, so I have a, I have a little side business, a side gig that, that allows me to do, like I help a friend who develops food products and, and she'll go off and she'll, she'll figure out kind of the, the testing part of it. We'll, we'll talk about it. She'll actually send it off to the pilot plant to be made and then be tested. And then they give me the data and I get to play with the data to then say, all right, here's what we should go build. And it's, it's one of those things where it feels like magic because everybody's like, how did you do that? And it's like, it's just math, guys. It's just math. And it's the notion of like, instead of trying to see what I got, I'm letting the salsa tell me what it is. Could you walk me through the salsa? Like, could you walk us through an example in a little more yeah. detail? So, so th- think of it this way. If you're doing salsa, it's like, you know, uh, the, uh, like how many, how much onions versus how much tomato. So the ratio of tomatoes to onions, right? It's like, uh, how much vinegar? How much, uh, how much, like, what are the, what's the size? Do you make it a little chunkier? Do you make it a little, I think, do you add a thickener to it? Like, there's all these different variables you can do to make a better salsa. And so part of it is to realize, like, how do I actually do that? And so what happens is we come up and pick, pick out the what we would call the variables, which would be like the size of the cut and the ratio of tomato to onions and, you know, the the percent salt, the percent vinegar. We'll have cook time, right? So we can actually vary the cook time in terms of making – so I can actually cook it just so it uh, kills the bacteria or I can cook it longer so it all molds together, right? Mm-hmm. And then I can add spices. So different variables I can put in it. And then I pick levels. So I say like the, the ratio is like, you know, uh, two to one or three to one or four to one in terms of tomatoes and onions. And then I have cut size is, you know, two millimeter, two and a half millimeter, three millimeter. And so ultimately what it does is then tells me the recipe of what salsa to go build. And then I build those nine salsas. And then I actually then have people try those nine salsas and out of it, I can say what makes it better, what makes it worse, what improves, you know, the adherence to a chip, what affects overall liking, what affects cost. And then Mm -hmm. ultimately I have from those nine, I have actually all those different views on it that I can then actually figure out kind of what are the trade-offs I have to make in order to kind of, and so what we were able to do is improve overall liking by 23% and reduce the cost by almost 18%. Hmm. So let me make sure I'm with you here just to play this back because this, this is fascinating and I want to, I'm trying to get this in real time. Like I'm, I'm along with the listener. I'm learning this as we go. Yeah, yeah. So if it, it, just to play this back. So you've got a number of variables you're starting with, right? Like the rate, yep. the cuts, the ratio, the amount of vinegar, the cook time. Yep. And yep. then you are basically combining these variables and doing them at different levels, getting yourself something like 81 combinations being tested across nine versions. I'm actually only doing nine of those 81s. I'm doing a special subset of the orthogonal array of nine instead of doing 81. And so what happens is everybody else is out there trying to do the 81 and I'm doing the nine and I get the actual same results. Got it. So way faster. 
So that's one of the hacks that I have is this notion of a design experience. The, the second is most people say when they have 81 prototypes to make, they go, oh, you know, that's too many. Let, what, let's cut it back. So they cut the number of variables out. But the reality is they don't know how those variables affect cost or overall liking or adherence to the chip or all those other things. And so they're not thinking about it in a multidimensional way. And most time we think about problems and say like, oh, it doesn't hear the chip. Let's fix that. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, it doesn't, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's too heavy or it's too dense or it's too expensive. And then we got to do something else. Yeah. You fix one thing. Now you have a new problem. And we've got Dr. Deguchi used to call it whack-a-mole. You just like most engineers work in a whack-a-mole way that just solves one pro- problem to create another. They don't think about the functions of things. But if you think about that same approach of like designing a web page, Right. Like think about like call to action. Where do I put like what is the call to action? That's a variable. Where do I put the call to action? Right. How do I lay it out? What are the colors that I use? What's the font? What's the font size? Those are all variables that affect how quickly and how somebody can understand what to do next. And so part of this is when you frame it as a system and understand it, you can start to realize like we're, we're, we're building something, but then what we do is we look for problems and then just fix problems as opposed to understand what's the role the font plays and actually helping people convert. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right now it might not be much, but the fact is, you know, one font size might be better than another and another font size. When you get to too big, it's like, yeah, it's just too much. It take too much real estate. I can't do it. So you start to realize there's thresholds for all of these things. And so a lot of times we don't think about these things as variables, but when we start to look at it as a system, we start to realize we don't actually know the role that font plays in conversion. Yeah. So it sounds like the key shift here is really the, really actually at the mindset level of saying, yes, there's, there's a bunch of math we can do that'll tell us what nine things to build to maximize our experimental surface area. But the real shift is to say, I actually don't know. Right. And I'm not going to go build a bunch of things to try and assume I know, but rather I'm going to go do these combos, test them, and then look at the data that comes back to say, Oh, wow. When I, you know, this, this tweak changed that amount of liking or understanding or something like that. Yep. And I, I think the, the other thing though, is that it's, it, so Toguchi always would say, it's not about the statistics. It's, this is not about the math. As an engineer, I don't have enough time and I don't have enough money. So ultimately, how do I actually generate the right technical information as efficiently and as effectively as possible? And most of the times we just literally I feel like it's a random or a brownie in motion. Like I fixed this and oh, I got this problem. And then I fixed that and I got that problem. And it's this, this, this random walk down the street because I don't know the problems as opposed to like what we learned, like what I learned at 19 years old is in Japan is they actually made their product fail first. So they understood where the thresholds were. So then they could make it better where we would actually make it work and then wait for it to fail. <laughs> Like we would literally say, oh, it works. The transmission works great. And then we'd hook it to the engine and it didn't work. And when the transmission didn't work, we'd say, oh, it's the engine's fault because we got it to work. And the engine would right. go like, it's not my problem. That's your problem. And so then you had all these people pointing fingers and nobody really knowing what was supposed to happen as opposed to thinking about like, how do I build the best transmission no matter the engine or no matter the environment? Tuguchi's work is very deep. It's very, very deep. So, where does somebody go if they want to learn more about this? Cause this, like, you, you have absolutely piqued my curiosity here. And I'm like, okay, I need to go understand this. And I'm pretty sure some people listening feel that way yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, right now there's a, there's a, there, I'm trying to actually go in the archives and see if I can get video of Dr. Taguchi and almost like have him speak and then have me interpret. Like, like, cause he was, he was, he was a very good speaker, but is very, he was almost like at a level nine. And most people were at a level two. And so they couldn't understand what he was saying kind of thing. And so this is where I want to, I'd love to be able to kind of bring that back. There, there's a couple of books. The Introduction to Quality Engineering is kind of the, the I'll say the seminal text that, that Taguchi kind of wrote around it. There's there's a book called the Orthogonal Arrays and Linear Graphs that, that Taguchi wrote with Yu and Wu. But, and, and I think George Box has a lot of work on design of experiments. Tim Davis as a statistician I worked with for a long time who's in, in, uh, in England and the Royal Statistical Society. Like there's a lot of work around design of experiments. So I, I, I think the deep pole to go down is design of experiments first and then start to understand Taguchi's view on it. And it's one of those things where I feel like I need to write a, an updated text or partner with some people to get an updated version of what Taguchi talked about, because I just feel like it's, he has a lot of mechanical examples, but we need more digital examples. And so, and the problem I have is the digital stuff I do, is just so proprietary that I'd like, I can't share case studies, you know, that's the hard part. 
Now, I want to understand, how does this prototyping to learn where we're saying we don't know the solutions, right? This seems very linked to the idea of yeah. uncovering demand, like you were saying earlier. These seem like they're really kind of two sides. Right. of the- I think, I think, so I think of it as that there's a supply side to the world, which is where we build things and we build our products. And there's a demand side of the world where consumers have problems and they pull products or services into their lives to make progress. And so part of this is to realize that, that as consumers, we prototype to learn as well. Like, I don't know what car I want. Let me go drive. Let me, let me look at this. Let me look at that. How about this one? How about this one? And so we, we, we prototype as human beings all the time. And so part of this is that, that aspect of, of that notion of we know the answers. And so, so part of this is that all things have to start from the demand side, in my, in my opinion, right? Because I feel like if I don't understand the struggling moment I'm going after and when and where and why and who, right, is actually struggling. I don't know what to do, right? Because there's so many trade-offs I have to make. There's, like I can never build the best product in the world because there's so many different perspectives. And so part of it is being able to understand the demand side first. And so to me, this, and then once I understand the demand side, I actually then have to figure out how to prototype, right, different ways in which to solve that solution. And so one of the things that, that when I was in Japan, they talked about was, they, they had me work on a project where I had to come up with requirements for, for a seat, right? And the customer requirements were like, the, what they said is, I want the customer requirements to be solution agnostic. I said, what do you mean? It's like, well, if they're sitting, I don't, I, like there might not be a backrest. So don't say like the backrest has to be firm. And so you have to start to think about what are the real outcomes that they, they're seeking when they're buying these things. And so you start to realize that that trying to understand the outcome somebody wants is different than trying to help them describe the product they want. Because the product they want, to be honest, they don't really know what they want. They know the outcome they want. And so that's really where we start to to, to have have to understand what are the things that what are the outcomes and how do we then translate those outcomes to what products we can produce. Absolutely. So one of the things that I, one of the questions I want to dig into a little bit, because I, I've spent some time with jobs to be done. And, and so do, you know, many, many folks I know yep. who, who practice in product. One of the questions that has come up a lot as I've talked with just friends about this is how exactly A, to do it and B, to use it. And I feel like it's one of these, it, it's a tool that's so flexible that like people conceptually get it, but it's the translation and like literally putting it into practice where I feel like people get tripped up a little bit. Yeah. So the, I, I think, I think there's, so this is one of the things I'm, I'm working on right now is I'm building some classes. I'm a, an adjunct at Northwestern at the Kellogg School. And so, and what I learned is that, and, and just interviewing like the last year during COVID, I started interviewing people of like, why do they use it? When do they use it? How did it work? Like trying to understand the job that they hire jobs for, right? Jobs of jobs. And, and ultimately, yeah, yeah. But I think that there's two parts. One part is that, that some people need to apply it because they need the insight to know what to go build. There's people who want to know how to do the interview and do the process. And there's a very specific process of how we have it laid out and how we do it to do that. But it's it's, it's mostly on a series, you know, framing a very focused question that if I answer that question, it'll help me answer 20 other questions. And then going and recruiting people who are, are have had that struggling moment or have had, you know, have used the product you're looking at or framing basically who we're going to talk to, go do the interviews and then seeing patterns. That's the first part. The second part is that I've been working with people like Claire Sullentrope and April Dunford and some of those people around, I, I, we've got the jobs. What do we do with it? And so there's notion of that we can use. I'm doing like, so there's, there's really four places that I've been kind of going deep with, with, um, this one is obviously in product, right? There's just like, it's a lot like Ryan Singer and I and shape up is all based on this notion of how do we take those inputs and shape what what we need to go build next kind of thing, right? The second part is then to marketing, which is like Claire and April, which is how do we actually signal to people and help them understand their struggling moment and know that we're a solution to it. The, the third place is I wrote a book called Demand Side Sales because at some point it's not about selling, it's about helping people buy. And so we've been able to use jobs in that space. 
And then the last one is in strategy. Like who do we partner with? Strategically, should we be going after all three of these jobs? Is there only two jobs we should go after? Do we get one by, you know, by default? Because if we do that, what we do these other two, everybody else is going to pull that one. Like where do we start and how do we think strategic about the go to market strategy? So that first part is one is how to do it. The second is then how do we apply it or how do we utilize that information in all four of those different kind of places? And so that's, that's one of the reasons why jobs is so important, you know, cause it, it, it's like, it's, it's a very foundational research and most people feel like they have the answers. And when you really get to it, they don't have the answers. Yeah. So one question that I've seen specifically on this is how is the research side of it different? If you are going zero to one, like you don't yet yeah. have a product, you're still in concept land versus you already have a product and you're. Yep. Yep. So the way I, I kind of advise it is think of it this way is if I'm building a product, I have some notion of what, what, what it is. And nine times out of 10, I'll tell entrepreneurs like first go build your product, like get it out of your head. So then we can hear because most of the time people can't hear what people say because they're still trying to connect it to their vision of the product. But what I would say when you don't have anything, the first thing mm -hmm. I do. So for example, when I wrote my first book, what I did is I said, all right, what, what, what books do I want to be either next or what books do I want to replace? And then I went and had uh, interviewed people of saying, why did you pick up this book? What was going on? What was going, you know, basically what was going on in the business? What was like, so I, I went and recruited people who literally went and grabbed a book and the book was valuable for them at the, at some space in time in the last 12 months. And so we'd I'd go through and figure out why did they pick it? What was going on? How did it look? And then ultimately, that's how I found the job. of God. So these were sort of competitive books in a sense? They're, they're, yeah, they're competitive. So ultimately, what I always say is like, is it, you know, it's what people will fire when you're there. So let's go figure out why people hired that other thing, right? And so it's kind of like, you know, if, if we were base camp, it's like, let's go talk to people about Microsoft Project and figure out why they hired that. And like, how many people want to hire a project but don't? And that's what we end up building. And so, and so these are the things where you start to realize. And so, so like, if you look at Basecamp, like they built Hay, right? Hay was all around the struggling moment of like, email is, why is email so hard? It doesn't have to be so hard. What if we came up with a new way to think about email? How many people would love to have a better email, a way to email, but th they can't think of it? And to be honest, I think they, you know, they're, they're killing it right now. Hey. Absolutely. So let's, I want to talk a little bit more briefly about the doing the research. And then I really want to actually zoom in on the application of it. So where do people, cause there's, there's a fair amount of resources out there already about how to go do these interviews. What would you suggest people look at? And in particular, what are like the most common mistakes where people go wrong? The first thing is that I would say for me, questionnaires don't work, especially when you're doing really new stuff. Because at some point in time, we're going to put our questions and our answers, not knowing the language they're going to say and, and end up people misinterpreting. So it's like, I always say, I'm not smart enough to write a questionnaire yet. And most people say, well, I can write one. I'm like, I know you can, but the reality is like, we're not smart enough about what people are talking about. So a lot of times people are trying to prescribe what the language is. When the reality is, is our job, part of this research is to understand their language, how they use it, and what do they mean by it. So when they say easy, it turns out there's 22 different definitions of easy. Which one of easy are we talking about right now? And I can't do easy for everything. And if I can't do easy for everything, what's the easiest? What are the three easy things I really need to work on? Right? So I think, first of all, it's, it's, it's thinking I know the language or I'm going to educate people about the language. I think the, the second one is that it's about recruiting, right? My belief is that, you know, people, a lot of people do usage and attitudes around certain things or certain categories or things like that. But I always say that's a correlation and not causation. And so what you really want to do is recruit people who have struggled and switched and picked something else. Because understanding their journey of how did they know they had a problem? How did they actually figure out that they needed to do something else? How did they actually narrow it down and select? How did they actually commit? And what did they do afterwards? Like knowing that journey and seeing it over and over again, you start to see the patterns. So I always say that this is way more about criminal and intelligence interrogation than it is about kind of hypothesis testing and, and you know, asking, just asking questions, right? I think the, the last thing is really that people end up trying to write a discussion guide or they try to think of the questions they're going to ask beforehand. 
And, and what I, and this is more my opinion is that I, I know some people sometimes need like a guide of some sort, but I'm not trying to actually make sure every interview is exactly the same. I actually want to make sure I know they're different and I want to know. And what I'm trying to do is understand what caused them to say, today's the day I stopped using this and I started using that. Right. And so I think that's, that's really one of the things is most people want to assume what that is and they don't. And then the last thing is they don't know how to unpack it. So they'll say, like I was talking to somebody else is like, you know, well, I, I was just frustrated. Oh, frustrated. They wrote it down and they moved on. I'm like, what does that mean? What does frustrated mm, yeah. mean? Like, like, what, was it too slow or was it that, that it, that, that it took too long or was it too much work or like, what, what was the frustrating about it? I'm like, Oh, I don't know. I'm like, okay, that, so it's, it's being able to actually unpack the things down to action. Right. So I always suggest the place to start here is, is Chris Voss's book, God uh, never split the difference and teaching you how to do criminal and intelligence interrogation and learning how to talk to somebody and be genuinely inquisitive about what they're doing and why they're doing it and not being, not trying to, you know, waterboard them. Right. But more trying to make sure that, 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 that they understand, like, you know, what, like, I don't understand what you mean when you say easy, or I don't understand what you mean by boy that, it, you know, it's convenient. Like, what does that mean? Like you start to realize there's so many words we use. I have this concept called the layers of language where, we have this pablum layer where everybody says, well, how was your day? And they'll say, oh, it was great. But they were lying to you. Right? They had a shitty day, but they just want to go into it, right? And so part of this is this pablum layer where it's like mom and apple pie and just all these things that we can all agree on, but it's like we don't know what anybody need means. And then there's the next layer down. I call it the fantasy nightmare layer where everything is ex exaggerated to an extreme of, of either extreme pain or extreme pleasure but it still doesn't tell you what it is until you get down to what I call the causal layer. And once you get down to the causal layer, then you can start to see what's going on. And, and that's really what we're trying to get to is what caused people to say today's the day. It's not, not what was their, you know, like in a lot of cases, most people will backfill why they did something and they'll talk about it. Like as if it was part of the decision-making, but they didn't actually know about it till after they made the decision. And so part of this is being able to interrogate in a way to understand when did they know what, and how do they really decide? Yeah, there's so much nuance and subtlety to this, right? It's, it's, a, it's a pretty yeah. simple concept, but the doing of it is not so simple. So how does someone like really learn this for real? My advice is always like, first of all, don't start on your own product. I'd say interview a friend, a colleague, a brother, a sister, a mom, a dad, you know, are, my kids, my kids hate me at this point because I just interview them about everything. But like, being able to like when I sit down next to somebody on an airplane, I'm I'm always proud. Like, so tell me about what what was the greatest present you got like for 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 Christmas or what was you know like what what's what thing did you finally get this year that you didn't ha that you had been dreaming for for a long time and then hear their story mm -hmm. of how they got it. And so to me, getting really good at extracting people's stories is how you get great at this. Like I I, I do easily. I want to say 300 interviews a year, at least, at least 300 on product. Latest one is so one of my next books is, is around employment and the whole, I've been studying for six years. What causes somebody to say, today's the day I'm going to leave this company and go to that company. I'm going to leave the law firm and become a judge. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, leave, leave McDonald's and go to Chipotle. I'm going to like across the board, everything. And so ultimately understanding the causation, of, but, but it's like, how do you decide what you want to do? And, and so you start to realize that the, the the same premise holds, right? And so it's like, what are the things, what progress are people trying to make? And you start to realize the great resignation is really not no more than the fact is like where the lens is flipped from, you know, employers hiring employees to now employees are hiring employers. And you start to realize you got to market differently and you got to actually reshape the work and you've got to be able to understand like how do I, to keep people, the, the notion of loyalty I think is actually a very dangerous notion of like, oh, people are loyal. And you start to realize the loyal people are actually just either lazy or very secure and they don't want to actually take the risk to go anywhere else. And so they're not really loyal. It just seems like it's loyal, right? And so this is where you start to realize. So I'm, I'm curious about that specifically. Like what, what are you, what have you found in that research that is actionable for people? Like, because people listening to this are probably dealing with this on their team. Some people are oh, leaving. Yeah. Some people think about leaving. Like what, what, what is like one or two things they should really keep in mind that you've. Yeah, so, so one of it is, is, so what's very interesting is a very simple question I ask people. So how was your day? 
right? And 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 I ask people how their day is, and they bring up any four of the pushes that we have. So like pushes are like, you know, I don't trust the people I work with. The way that I'm managed is wearing me down. I'm work, uh, you know, I'm I'm pushed beyond, you know, reasonable, you know, ethics and or uh, and or capabilities, right? They're having me do stuff I'm they're not training me for. I'm bored out of my mind. Like there's these list of 13 things and you start to realize like if any four of these things show up, I know they're ready to leave, right? And the, the and so to, so to be honest, I'm actually looking for people who want to leave but can't. They don't know how, right? And so the other part is then to see what does progress look like for them on the other side. And most people wait until the pushes get so big that they end up just quitting. Like, so it's like, uh, I, I remember talking to somebody the other day. They were like, I literally had a performance review with them. They said everything was great. It was amazing. They loved what they were doing. And they came in Tuesday and quit. I had no idea. And I'm like, well, how is that possible? And so we started to actually <laughs> wow. think about it. And the thing is, is they weren't listening for their progress. They were listening for the progress they wanted that person to make, but they didn't listen for the progress. And when they reflected on the conversation, there was no progress on that. They made progress in the job, but they didn't make progress in their mind around themselves and their career. Yeah, just to provide an actionable suggestion for, for the listener really quick. This is definitely something to keep in mind. Like keep Bob's voice as he's saying this in the back of your head during all of your upcoming one-on-ones, right? Be listening for these things as you're talking to the, your people on your team. Like are, are there any of these things in there beneath the surface? So I have a colleague I work with, right? Her name's Kath, her name's Catherine and she comes from working in schools like K through 12, K through eight schools. And she went back and got her MBA. And, and so she's been working here for two years. And one of the things I asked her, I said, what do you miss most about, you know, working at school? She goes, I miss the kids. You know, I like to mentor. I would work, I would do dorm duty. I would like, like to go on field trips. Like I like interacting with kids and like, you know, I'm like, well, I'm not going to like, we don't work with kids. <laughs> right. And so I'm like, okay. And, and if this is something that she's struggling with, that means there's an opportunity for her to kind of go back to, to school because like if that becomes big enough. So one of the things we came up with, I said, so what can we do to help kind of assuage some of that progress so you can make progress? She goes, you know, I, I'll look around. And she came back and said, well, I'd like to join Big Brothers Big Sisters. I'm like, that's awesome. And so she made the application, went through it. And then all of a sudden she said one day, she's like, well, I, I got to leave early because I want to go take my little sister out for dinner. I said, so hold on a second. I said, look, here's the thing. This is part of work. I'm making this part of work. So you can leave anytime you want, because if you don't actually spend time with your little sister, then this job will not be satisfying to you. And so part of this is to actually understand that it's, it's sometimes I can't provide it, but I can provide the space or the time or, or even the resources to actually go do some of the other things they want to do. So they continue to actually make progress with while, while they're working with me. The other thing is, is when anybody, some, somebody comes to quit, on me. First thing I always say is congratulations and what progress are you trying to make? And then what, what is the, what, what were the pushes that, that made it now for, the, for basically time for you to leave? And so we have very open conversations about it all the time. And so like even, even with my one-on-ones, we talk about what, what progress did you make in the last quarter? What progress do you want to make in the next quarter? Here's the progress you helped me make in the last quarter. Here's the progress I want to make in the next quarter. And that's how we manage each other's expectations. Uh, hire your next job is the name, the working title of it. We're working on that right now. So I want to start to close out here. And I, I, I think just in closing out, I'd love to spend a couple of minutes. I really want to, would love to hear you talk a little bit more about this, the other side of jobs, of, of how they're applied into specifically, you know, at, at whatever level of depth you, you want to go in terms of the, the product, the marketing and the strategy. Because I can imagine if you do the research and you have this course set of jobs, that is going to inform everything. So how often do you need to revisit the jobs research? Is it something you have to be continually updating? Is it a quarterly thing? I, I, it's unclear. So this is where it's, this is where it's strange. Like I, 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 my thing is, is, is I don't think the jobs change that much, right? The underlying. So again, a job is a combination of who, when, where, and why, right? So if it's those, those things that, that like, what are they struggling with and, and when are they struggling with it and what were they using before and what they can use next. And so the thing is, is like, if, if I look at the jobs we did at Basecamp in 2010 and we look at the Basecamp jobs, they, they're actually very similar. What's changed is, is language around it and the, the, the sophistication of the, 
of the market and the number of competitors, but they actually are still being hired for the same job that they were 10 years ago. And that's the crazy part is that, that most people think that we need marketing has been given the bill of goods of where they, they always constantly need to make a new feature to get attention. And what I would say is being at the right place at the right time is ultimately the easiest marketing we can do. Right. <laughs> and so, and so part of this is being able to understand that. Got it. Okay. So the jobs themselves, the core yes. jobs are pretty consistent, but the way they're talked about is changing and evolving both on the supply side and the demand side. If I'm hearing you correct, that's correct. But like intercom, they, they moved away from the jobs and then they moved back to them primarily because they thought the language was moving more towards product. And they, they actually went back to, you know, they changed it in 18 or 19 and then moved back to kind of the same positioning that, that we, they had in 14. So it's like, and then, and it's, it just proved, it's proven to be there. The key is that, that, that language might change. So to be honest, We've done, let's see, for one client, they actually, they got rid of an entire division and then rehired everybody and we redid the job. And, and that was what, two years, three years later, and they were exactly the same. And so my thing is, is they, 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 those underlying causal mechanisms just don't change. It's the way people talk about them. That's what changes. Gotcha. Gotcha. So talk to me specifically just for a few minutes about how to apply the jobs, the jobs that you uncover in your research to strategy, because I think it's, it's much clearer and people have more practice with thinking about it in terms of shaping the product, shaping the marketing, even shaping sales. And you have demand side sales kind of covering that one directly, but strategy, I haven't heard too much there. So talk to me about that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm working on a process right now called driving forces. I'm doing it with uh, four companies. And what we're doing is we're using the notion of causation and understanding what are those things we need to, what opportunities do we need to, are we going to take advantage of, or what threats do we need to actually defend against? And what are the underlying causal mechanisms to why that is true? So why is that a threat and why is that an opportunity? And so ultimately, then there's there's a technological side there's a competitive side there's a demand side play there's 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 a there's a supply chain side so like as you start to have different perspectives on the business jobs becomes one of the the core elements of helping you define kind of where do opportunities really exist given the supply side we have so it sounds like as you're doing the the jobs research, not only are you uncovering the core jobs, but you're also learning a lot of the the opportunities you weren't aware of, maybe the competitive options that that is in the customer's world that you were not aware of, and so that's going to filter into shaping your strategy. Right. So so like I worked with Casper, and one of the things that we found was the greatest competitor to a new mattress isn't Sealy or Serta or Simmons; it's a bottle of Zequil and a bottle of Scotch. Right. <laughs> Like when people can't sleep, it's not like, oh, I need a new mattress. It's like, oh, I need some Zequil. Oh, it's like they blame something else. Oh, I bought a sound machine. It's like, oh, when the sound machine isn't working, you know what? Maybe it's time for a mattress. Come look at Casper. And we, I, us understanding the real competitive set from the consumer perspective. Again, the demand side competitor is very different than the supply side competitor. Cause like Casper industry wise, they compete with Serta and Simmons and Sleep Number and Helix and like all these people, but. The reality is like in the consumer's mind, actually, they compete with a lot of other things way broader. This is why I have that fundamental separation between the supply side and the demand side. Perfect. Where can people go to learn about this? You were a little hesitant earlier when I said the YouTube video thing. So what would you actually suggest for people? Uh, we're in the, I'm in the midst of kind of uh, prototyping some classes out, but I have, there's uh, four books I would recommend. One is Learning to Build, which is a five bedrock skills is the one we talked about. Demand side sales, which is really that most people don't like, that was really written with the notion of why are there no sales professors? How do I go? How, how can I go to business school and not learn about sales? That's got to be the craziest thing in the world. So that's what, and it really talks about jobs and aligning your sales system to helping people buy. There's one called the Jobs Be Done Handbook, which is really around kind of the, the interviewing uh, uh, ins and outs and kind of pushes around it. And then Competing Against Luck, which is a book written by Clayton Christensen that I helped on back in 2017, 18 something like that, that helped kind of put uh, jobs on the map. And so those would be the, the initial resources, but I'm, I'm doing, uh, I've redid the website. I've, I'm, uh, if, if you, if you're really interested, LinkedIn, LinkedIn is a place where, where I can help. I'm, I have blog posts that are, that are up. We have a podcast called the circuit breaker podcast, which is kind of like a, 
you know, 30 minute unplug and just kind of help you think a little bit deeper. So I'm, I'm, and I'm teaching at Northwestern. So if you want to do a, a special product class at Northwestern, we can figure out how to do that too. So, but, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm winding down the consulting and I'm really focusing more on trying to find four or five, six companies that I spend the bulk of my time with and then do a few projects and then teach. And so, and, and just get this shit out of my head. I got so much in my head. There's just so like, like you said, 3,500 is a lot of products. And I start to realize like, there's just so much I want to be able to share. And at the same time, like I, I need to find people who are open to wanting to learn. That's the hard part. Cause it's at some point in time, you know, Deming would always say like the people in the U S would be the last place you, you're going to want to actually help people because they're too arrogant. You're going to want to go to India and China. I'm like, okay. So that, I've been doing a lot of work in, in third world countries and, and other places as well. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, just in closing out, Bob, what would you like to leave the listener with and how can listeners of this be helpful yeah. to you? I think one is, is Clay said it best is that, you know, the teacher appears when the student's ready to learn. When you're ready to really learn and dive in to learn any of these skills, please reach out. I would love to be able to kind of pass on my, my, what my mentors have taught me to as many people as possible before I die. So Clay would uh, always said, you know, how will you measure your life? And he, he had the, the metric of a number of people that he helped. And so I've adopted that in the last five years. And so to me, anytime I can help anybody, I'm, you know, I'm more than happy to do it and being able to figure out how to do it at scale. So LinkedIn website, the rewired group or Amazon are the places to go to get to, to get me. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, we will link to all that in the show notes. And Bob, again, I feel like I could talk to you forever because there is so much in that head of yours. But thank you so much for the time and for for hanging out. Really appreciate it. Thing I'll offer is if 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 your audience has questions and they want like you want to accumulate them up and you want to do a just a sidebar and where like we just riff on some questions. More than happy to kind of analogy the Detroit analogy is let the rubber hit the road. More than happy to kind of be part of that as possible if if that makes sense. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, I will absolutely follow up with you about that. Cool. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners, and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. See you out there.